I'm Chris McAlilly. And I'm Eddie Rester. Welcome to The Wait. Today, we're talking to the writer and uh, podcast host and the overall wonderful human being, Kate Bowler. Kate Bowler, she's an associate professor at Duke Divinity School. Um, She completed her undergraduate degree at McAllister College. Uh, She has authored multiple books, Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. That's her area of research. She also wrote the New York Times bestselling memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, and also has a book coming out this fall. We're going to talk to her about that today. Kate is just a delightful person. What you'll hear is that she's wicked smart. She's also incredibly funny and um, and she's also been thinking deeply about what it is to live in a world where there's pain and suffering, illness and disease. That's part of her personal story as well. Yeah, if you have ever asked the question, why, why me, why my friend, if you've ever uh, in the face of great pain or suffering um, just wondered about the meaning of it all, she's she's one who is wrestling with uh, with you in in those spaces and does it in a thoughtful and beautiful and humorous way. I am going to have to go back and listen and and ponder a lot of the things that that she said. But one of the things that that uh, I was struck by in in her book and then also just in conversation is that she talks about how the world is not a safe place for people who are in pain, um, and that. You know, there there's spaces. There it, a lot of times there's not oxygen in the room or oxygen in the church for for folks who are experiencing those things. And we don't also you know often want to hear what's really going on um, with folks. And she gives her kind of perspective on that, and even some thoughts on how we can we can live better with one another, and you know even some some reflections on what we lost during this season of COVID. So um, we know you're going to enjoy this episode. She is funny and fun, uh, but thoughtful and deep as well. So um, I hope you'll enjoy. Share this one with a friend. Encourage encourage others to join us in this conversation today. Thanks for being with us on The Wait. We started this podcast out of frustration with the tone of American Christianity. There are some topics too heavy for sermons and sound bites. We wanted to create a space with a bit more recognition of the difficulty, nuance, and complexity of cultural issues. If you've given up on the church, we want to give you a place to encounter a fresh perspective on the wisdom of the Christian tradition in our conversations about politics, race, sexuality, art, and mental health. If you're a Christian seeking a better way to talk about the important issues of the day with more humility, charity, and intellectual honesty, It grapples with scripture and the church's tradition in a way that doesn't dismiss people out of hand. You're in the right place. Welcome to The Wait. We are excited today to be talking with uh, Kate Bowler, an author, a professor at the Duke Divinity School that Chris and I have a little. In fact, we'll just talk a lot about Duke Divinity School politics. We'll get to that in in just, (laughs) just a little bit. Author of a a New York Times bestselling book, another book going to hit the shelves uh, this fall, we'll talk some about that. Uh, Kate, though, this summer, you've had an exciting summer. You were bit by a snake at one point. Whoa, Chris, Eddie, we're just jumping in right here. Yes. Just jumping right in. My just own, right in. my new, my recent near-death experience. Yes. 
I was um, basically being just a, a local Mother Teresa, um, mm-hmm. making room on a path for an elderly man and his dog. <laughs> and I stepped one step backward off a path in my in my local park, and uh, bam. I was bitten by a copperhead snake and had to spend the next couple of days in the hospital being envenomated. Bam. To, wow. to be unvenomated. Unvenom. Yeah. What is unvenomated? I didn't well, know. Well, I was venomated oh, because ven- of the copperhead. You were anti-venomated. To, to either give me both drugs and superpowers. So yeah, that's what I'm <laughs> bringing into this conversation today. We had a friend. Superpowers. We had a friend uh, here in Oxford that for whom that that happened. That's what happened to Neil, right, Eddie? Yeah, that's what happened to Neil. Yeah, he was he was trying to walk through his carport in the dark, and he felt something hit his leg. Aww. He, he was, and his wife wife was out of town. He was all so alone. It was, all, it was drama. Yeah, it is drama. They take it very seriously because of I don't know mortality or something. But. <laughs> It was uh, the amount of people who were very alarmed in the emergency room and wanted to wanted to come look at it suggested to me that it was serious. You you have a you have a new book coming out, right? Uh, No cure for being human. Yeah, yeah, we're we're excited to 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 talk to you a little bit about about that. One of the things you say at the beginning of the book is is you know framing life, and I think this is the way a lot of people think of of what it means to move through the world as a series of choices. And, and, mm-hmm. and you talk um, just right out of the gates about how things began to shift for you. For folks who maybe don't know your work or that are um, new to, to Kate Bowler, what, how, <laughs> how, 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 uh, how is that, how did, how did that change for you and, and what, what, what has happened? Sure. Well, I, um, I think like a like a lot of people who are just trying to find their way in the world, I had really sort of attacked life as being um, a, a question of like maximization, um, choosing between difficult things and then like climbing, climbing, climbing. And it's part of, uh, I really always wanted to be a professor my whole life. And so I was working really hard to try to get my dream job. At Duke University, and I was uh, simultaneously um, an expert in the prosperity gospel. So I had spent my whole twenties interviewing televangelists and megachurch pastors about uh, the belief that you can always fix your life. That if you have the right kind of faith, that you it's you know the gospel of of best life now. That there is nothing, you know, with, with for a believer with the right kind of faith and attitude and mindset and hard work that, um, that life will always have a way of, of, of turning out. And so when I was very suddenly diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at 35, I found myself having to, um, immediately revisit beliefs that I didn't really know that I had. I mean, the feeling of, I think it's probably pretty normal for anybody who's like really suddenly suffering for something with something to, to just wonder, you know, why me? Why is this happening to me? But um, it caused me to be really curious about why, why I had come to believe 
that that I was special somehow, that like my life of all lives had to turn out. And so um, both during my treatment and just as a as a historian, I started to think more and more about the cultural scripts that we tell ourselves, like what is it in the American Christian water that leads us to have maybe very similar experiences to the like reactions to the one I did. Did you think about that reaction? Talk us through a little bit just about how you got to the play. Your your first book, Everything Happens for a Reason, Otherwise Our Love, begins this conversation. I feel like yeah. uh, the book um, that's coming out, uh, No Cure for Being Human, just takes the conversation a little bit further. What were some of the things that you began to struggle with, learn, engage? I mean, you were a, a new mom at the time, yeah. um, living in Durham, your professor at the university. You said uh, you always wanted to, to work at. Your career uh, had really taken off. What, what were some of those things that you really began uh, to wrestle and think about? Yeah. Well, I think the... The first questions I had had were those sort of big theodicy questions about why me and and this this other question, this felt like longer question maybe, mm-hmm. was in the move from, from crisis to chronic. So like right when something happens, you have a certain set of questions like, like is this is this personal? Is this something to do with me? And oh, you know, all the way to is God good? Like, how can I live with what's happened to me, um, and and have a the same big beautiful faith that I might have hoped for? And and this these kinds of questions came out of um, of surviving or trying to survive when I realized that cancer was not going to be an event. But cancer was going to be something that kept happening to me. That I would have to live with this possibly forever then i started to think well crap like <laughs> I, yeah. I, I was i was really good at um at preparing to die like mm-hmm. i got i like got my brain around that but then when i realized that i would keep living i realized that i i didn't even have like an alternative story i was going to tell myself about how to live now that it was actually almost right away i was i realized that it was it was basically easier to try to go back to the person i was before just like okay well now i guess i will just go back to trying to be a good mom and be reasonably ambitious at work i mean i didn't have a compelling theological account of like what <laughs> of how to live. I mean, it's so, it's so basic, but like we get, we are fed all of these really intense cultural stories about how to do it. Like, is it, is it pragmatism? Is it be present? Is it, you only live once? I mean, we just, I, I didn't know which path to take. And, and because when you live with chronic cancer, you're always having to carve two paths at the same time. One is a very intense acceptance of your fragility and knowing that the road might end. But then this other one where you're like, well, then good God, <laughs> like, how, do I, how do I do this if it just keeps going? Hmm. Yeah. So it's like, it's almost like, I mean, I think that's one of the themes about your work that I find so very interesting because it's, 
in some ways, just a, in, in various ways, it's, you're coming around in various ways, the, our experience in time. And some of that is memory. Some of that is, is the present living in the present. Some of that is the future, especially when the future is cut off from you or that it's shorter than you thought it was. Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like that because I mean, if you're, if you take our lives to be, it, you know, their cultural scripts or their stories that we're telling and that we're living, just how, why has, why have you zeroed in? Maybe, maybe it's just, this is what you do in, when this is your experience, but. <laughs> and this is my brain. But, Chris, but, and this is my brain. <laughs> time. The talk, talk a, a little bit about your, just the, your meditation and contemplation of the reality of time. Yeah. Well, I think it came out of, um, I knew for sure there were stories I didn't want because people kept trying to saddle me with them. <laughs> so I think the first story I realized I was rejecting was when people say, um, and they say this all the time, um, well, aren't you so grateful for the perspectives that you've learned? Don't you mm. think that you would, you know, I mean, you'd never go back, right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, ins- it, I mean, it, frankly, it's so insulting. Like as if you wouldn't tell a young mom that she wants to, she wouldn't want to go back to the certainty that she gets to raise her kid. I mean, thank you. Heavily spiritualizing, you know, yeah, Linda's of the world. Um, <laughs> But I, I realized that that they were also trying to say something about time that I was just trying to, I was like nibbling around the edges of, which was, isn't it interesting that they're trying to say a bunch of different versions of no regrets, that everything that these are, they're all trying to give me stories about the future. And, and what a weird thing to be a Christian and try to understand our place in time. Like, I mean, because there's the ones that are saying like, oh, that we're obsessively future thinking. I mean, there's that. There's, um, well, don't worry, everything's going to be solved in heaven. I mean, all the things that are trying to propel us forward as if the future solves the problem of pain somehow. And I was like, (laughs) well, isn't, I mean, the future, this I was really stuck on, honestly, like, and because I, you know, work at Duke Divinity School, it was also a wonderful time to roam the hallways having theological questions. <laughs> but I think the first person I went to and was like, this is stupid, but I have no alternative, um, was Warren Smith. He teaches mm. church history. He is just one of the wisest, but also simultaneously most adorable people on the planet. You just want to hold him because he's so kind. <laughs> he's so kind. <laughs> and uh and I was like, Warren, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with, with these stories about time. Like, how do I learn to be hopeful if hope is the story about the future? But it sure feels a lot like, like people saying I should be certain. And I can guarantee you that with chronic cancer, I can be certain of, of nothing except that I'm human, except that I'm finite, except that we all die in the end. And just trying to then tease out, like, what is a Christian, a a robustly Christian account of time is trying to figure out our place in the story and what we are, in fact, hopeful for. Is it the thing that's already happened? Jesus died. Jesus saved us. 
Jesus restores us to a future, but it happened, you know, 2000 some years ago. Like it's quite a, it's, it's quite a brain puzzler. The, the way that we try to live inside of time with hope. One of the, I wrote this down. One of the, um, in one of the chapters early in the book, you said in a conversation you were having with someone about time and the future, you said the future is like a language I didn't speak anymore. That this sense of, yeah, how do you even begin to lean forward when you're uncertain about everything in the, in the yeah. path forward? Yeah. How, how did you begin to sort that mystery out in a way that allows you yeah. um, to kind of, breathe to, I guess, to live without yeah. waking up in just abject fear every day. Yeah. Well, cause part of it is you're really not sure about how you should feel about the past anymore because, you know, when something really awful happens to you and it could be a diagnosis or any number of tragedies and traumas, but the things that have happened are things that you're trying to live with. So for me, I was trying to not get over, but work through the fact that for almost six months, I had been sent home from the ER with Pepto-Bismol and that I had been openly told that it was in my head. And so I had half a year of, of quite openly dying and people not believing me. And so the, the immensity of that and then having to, you know, run the medical gauntlet of enduring treatments where I was in the hospital all the time trying to negotiate a new relationship with people that I would need to trust, you know, to take care of my health. So part of you is like, gosh, what do I do with the past? The past is an anvil. Like the past is now sad and tainted somehow. And yet <laughs> we can't, I mean, we cannot live with the weight of what has been done, except to say, God, this will not add up to something. And yet you must heal me from it. Like you must heal all of us from the things that have been done. So like, I couldn't live in the past because that was just bitterness though. You know, it would have been nice maybe to be like a little angrier than most Christians would have preferred. (laughs) And then it kind of felt like the present was mostly the playground of neo-Stoics and neo-Buddhists. I mean, our culture is obsessed with the gospel of mindfulness that seems to say that like self-mastery is the same thing as your meditation app and appearing Zen and having a shirt from Target that says good vibes only. My daughter has that shirt. (laughs) (laughs) I have that shirt. I bought it ironically, but it was so soft. Oh, that's so funny. That's so funny. All of these things are, are though, you know, it, I mean, they're meditations on the cultural scripts and stories, but at the heart of it is, is not just a meditation on time, but it's a meditation on what it means not just to be human, but a human in pain. One of the things you say in the new book is, I have it here. It's the world, basically, I, I, I may be paraphrasing, but the way the world is not a safe place for people in pain. Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. Well, that was in a moment in which I was at my best friend's birthday party. And then a friend's partner turned to me and told me that I should go out with a bang because I was going to die anyway. And then I 
And I really contemplated homicide for a second, except that I'm Mennonite and it felt <laughs> a lot of, out of character, <laughs> counter theological, but maybe in my character somewhere deep inside. Um, yeah, it's a, uh, I think that America, she said respectfully and lovingly, Americans are aggressively positive aggressively certain that pain should be fixed and it's 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 not just that it's you know it's it's not safe for people in pain because you know life just keeps happening and there's structural and individual evil but but i find that there's almost no oxygen in the room sometimes to say true things that are not neat you know like you can hear it in the way people will ask you a question like it's so <laughs> I wish I could do it with puppet hands right now. Or one's like, you know, like, how are you? And then you're like, actually, I was bitten by a copperhead. Copperhead's like a fun example because everyone is either afraid or interested, but like, let's just pretend. You're like, I was bitten by many, many copperheads and all this died. All right. Where you're like, no, no, it's been as well as well. And then you could hear it in their inflection when they're like, oh, but and they're just looking for an off-ramp too. Now, pastors, uh, bless you, are wonderfully trained to just hang out there for longer than the average non-veteran. But it is a, it, the, the, the speed with which the person in pain becomes a problem to be solved is still never ceases to amaze me. In the book, you talk about uh, just your relationship with doctors. And I want to tell folks that you have a great podcast and one of the best episodes is the Alan Alda conversation Aww. about listening. And uh, second only to the Matthew McConaughey episode. <laughs> but, but just this idea of training doctors to listen, to be within the, that moment of pain and uncertainty with a patient is important for doctors, important for pastors, but I think you're right. I think we all struggle because even though we ask people how they're doing, we don't really want to know. Yeah. Oh, it's so much. I mean, it's so much to really know how people are. And there's an immediate assumption like, well, do I have to know what to do? I mean, do I even have to, this has been one of the great tragedies of COVID is that in response to that, I mean, the best gift is just that of presence, like of holding that lovely space where you're willing to be up close to a crack in the universe with somebody. But I, um, I have loved the people who are good at that. And so I have loved, I have loved pastors and I love them. I have loved the way that they like knows their way in to my problems. I'm like, no, that's fine. Never mind. And they're just like, then I turn around and there they are with their anointing oils and their, <laughs> their laying out of hands and their bossiness. Like now we're going to pray. <laughs> it's been yeah. great. I do. I wonder, did you, did you happen to see the, the uh, opinion article it was a while back um by a woman by the name of lee stein in the new york times back i think it was back in march it was called the empty religions of instagram did you see that one yeah 
Yeah, I did. So I, I ordered her book too. She wrote a, a, a I haven't read it yet. But yeah, I'm satire. About it. Yeah, it's a satire. She wrote a book called Self Care. Yeah. Yeah, which is hilarious um, uh, because it's a satire of the the wellness ind- industry and kind of the influencer culture. And this is, you know, I think one of the things that I hear, particularly from women, particularly from women who feel like there's no oxygen in the room in churches for their pain, um, that that you know there there's open vistas and new horizons and conversations on social media and in the internet, people like Glennon Doyle and Jen Hatmaker and kind of all the rest. That's a space that I know you're exploring as well, trying to find the right way to communicate in this world where the barriers of space have been taken away, but people are finding new, new communities on online um, for their pain. But in this particular uh, opinion article, one of the things that Lee is doing is really kind of pushing at the way in which there's room for conversations to be overheard. But one of the lines in there that I just found heartbreaking was that, that people offer confessions without a confessor. And I also think yeah. sometimes folks offer their pain without a without a pastor or a Christian community or, or real embodied incarnational presence. And I just wonder what you are seeing or experiencing or what your critique is or what you see as the possibility for Christian conversations online in that space. Yeah. Well, I'm sure both of you have strong opinions after doing a year of year and a bit of online church. I would, uh, I'd love to opinions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I, um, I mean, it's, it's a challenge that I have tried to fully embrace, um, in part because I, I wrote a book, The Preacher's Wife, about a female influencer culture and how it's related to the church. And that made me very um, sympathetic to the fact that a lot of people turn to online communities when their uh, physical bricks and mortar communities are not able to um, are not welcome places for them. And simultaneously that the church has been so ingrained and enmeshed now in entertainment culture, celebrity culture, um, that it ends up with what I call a kind of Instagram theology in which we have curated, not just curated lives, but we have, um, in searching for community made it almost impossible to find it because, uh, our self-presentation now makes it almost impossible for us to be known. So I am, I mean, that's part of what we do here at the everything happens project is we put out uh, faith and media resources that are very friendly to an Instagram culture, but simultaneously we have, I mean, we are all have higher degrees in theological education. We have uh, folks who are pastors who respond to the hundreds and hundreds of messages we get every week. I mean, we try really hard to um, to think exactly about that question about whether people are not, there's confession without confessors. Is um, But knowing, of course, that this is also one of the limitations of what we would probably call parachurch ministries, right? Is people that, things that are um, uh, church supplements and not church, non-sacramental presence. So I think... There's less of a distinction now between the idea of like real church and online church, but there's uh, certainly no substitute for the um, for the sacramentalism and embodiment that a that a bricks and mortar congregation is there to is there to create. 
you know, one of the things that um, as we came out of uh, kind of the, the closed down world that yeah. I realized, and it, and it happened for me at an Ole Miss baseball game uh-huh. because I, I bumped into some people that I, I had maybe seen from a distance, but hadn't really talked to. And, you know, in these 15 and 30 second and two minute interactions that I had at this baseball game with all sorts of people that I hadn't seen much in a year, I realized it was those fleeting moments of just bumping into somebody that that we had missed as a culture that are so, that are, I think, more important than I ever realized. Mm-hmm. It's it's not that I have to spend an hour with people, but I think we all need these moments where we come across, you know, Chris and I come across each other, hey, what's going on? And, and you kind of learn that little bit of life from them in that, even in that fleeting moment. And, and what I worry with this shift to online life is that we, we miss that fleeting interaction that is more nurturing maybe than I think yeah. any of us understood. Yeah. I think I, I read a piece about it. I think it was through network theory where they were calling it kind of death by weak ties that we have mm-hmm. to, we could only afford a few strong ties. And so all the other things that sustain life and difference and, um, and like a diversity of, of, of experience so that we get more, we just end up with so much more over the course of a day than we would if we scheduled three online Zoom meetings, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's like body language, you know, it's the, the ability to read. And I think that this is where this, this, this idea that incarnational presence or sacramental presence or just being with another human being, you get to, you don't just hear their words or even just see their faces, but you get to see how they, you know, just... I know the longer you're with someone and through time in relationship, you just get to see what's going on. And then you're able to respond to that. There's, there is a, there is a thickness to those interactions and you get them in the coffee shop, you get them around town, you get them, you don't, you know, I think that's one of the, like, even so simple, like there, there was a kind of stability to the regions, you know, teller that would receive my checks when I used to do that, you know, mm-hmm. that I don't have anymore because I do everything online. And there's something gained in in the way of efficiency there, but there's something lost there in in um in the ability to be with one another. And it's those middle relationships too that that thicken our sense of community um to a particular place and time. I don't know. I'm just I'm I wonder I wonder for you, Kate, as you think about I mean, because I do think like there is a sense in which being a writer, you know, you, you I mean, the general round of writing a book is something where you're putting in time as an individual, you know, going deep in a particular direction. And then you kind of come up for air and then do a speaking round and tour and then and then come out of it. How do you how do you think about that? pastoral presence through, through writing in, in your own life? How do you, how do you find points of connection uh, with, with real, with real people, not just in the online spaces of your life, but in, in the embodied spaces as well? Well, coming out of, I mean, this whole year has been just me. I spent, I think I did about 10 quarantines in Canada because of various absolutely ridiculous reasons. So I'm not high on embodiment right now in terms of ratios, but Normally, I have a local church community, and I speak and write out of a community at the Divinity School in which my project is based, and we have 
you know, hundreds and hundreds of students. So I think that's one of the joys. I think you'll probably absolutely agree with me, gentlemen, is uh, one of the joys of church and divinity school life is that there is very little time for abstraction. You know, I always notice that like a, like a, a writer has done that kind of sinking between writing and then touring for too long when all of their anecdotes for their next book are like, I was on a plane or someone asked me in the Q and a, and I'm like, Oh, lovey. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. I mean, the, 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 um, the messiness that you're both talking about, the, the unscripted and the interruption is I think where we really learn at least for me, more about the stories that we live with. I, I'm, I'm very concerned about the way that both a self-help and a lightly, not lightly, a deeply metaphysical culture has taken over popular theology and made it hard for us to have other kinds of ways of making meaning of our lives except that we said that we meditated two days in the morning, you know, two minutes in the morning and that yeah. our therapist thinks we're making a lot of progress. I mean, I love meditation and I love therapy, but we, um, we're trying to tell a story about our lives and our churches and our community and our world drawn into God's story. And we have to spend time with other people to really know that we really don't belong only to ourselves is we really truly belong to one another. And, and I think one of the, again, the, the gifts of your book, a couple, couple things I want to highlight here, the book that's coming out is you really share so much of your life with your friends. And it's a great gift, I think, to see that. And, and at moments I kept thinking, boy, this was all happening before COVID. This was all happening before COVID. But, but the gift of, of relationship that you see just through the book, whether it's with uh, your mom and dad um, or your, your close friends, your high school friends, the other gift that I see in the book is just humor. Um, mm. there's, a, there's a lot of funny stuff. And just in talking with you before we started recording today, just your laughter. How, did, how do you find um, healing and humor? How have you... How, how do you nurture that? Because you've yeah. been through some serious, serious stuff. I mean, yeah. some of the darkest, hardest moments of life, but you seem to have come out of it with your humor intact. <laughs> so, well, or maybe well, refined or something. Uh, well, I do have a strong uh, um, pitch, I would like to say, for humor inside of the Christian community. I think maybe it comes from um, my dad's a historian. And when we were little, he had this pop culture article, like a week, like monthly article he wrote for the Canadian version of Christianity Today. And so he would write like little things on Bart Simpson or that kind of thing. And then, so of course at dinner, we would read his hate mail. <laughs> and oh it was every time my dad made a joke, there was just like, you know, dear sir, <laughs> I was gravely upset to discover. And, um, and it, I've, it, it, I loved it because when I got a job at the divinity school, uh, one of my friends, one of the deans said that she was hoping to make irony, one of the um, demonstrable outcomes for, uh, for all graduating classes. <laughs> and I thought, wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, cause there's a temptation of course, to make the precious moments version of everything where everything, where sincerity yeah. is the equation of what faith is. And I think honestly that 
that my faith is sustained by widening the widening the aperture for both the beautiful and the absolutely absurd. And to be able, and humor is my go-to to be able to say, like, how can I hold both those things in my mind at the same time? And uh it does um <laughs> I mean, I mean, just like last week when I was in the hospital for my snake bite, it was like the doctor comes in and you're just like, oh, come here often. I mean, it's the only place where you really have to try out your material. Oh, man, that's it, I guess if it goes over in the hospital, it goes over anywhere. Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> Absolutely. Was a guy like you doing in a place like this? I mean, it was really, it's always a high moment for me. Probably high because I'm on drugs, but. Oh, you know, in. You know, one of the things I, I loved uh, about Duke Divinity School when I was there, ages, and uh, you were a teenager when I was there, <laughs> um, but it it was young. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the average age was 26 back then. Yeah. I don't know a, what it is it's, now. It's full of babies. Yeah. We're still a little baby seminary. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, most folks came around. So there was just this always sense of looking for something fun to mm-hmm. do or ways to, we did a, a thing where we'd mock all of our professors at the end of our senior year, which we could only do at the end of our senior yes. years because Stanley Hauerwas would have failed all of us uh, <laughs> for the things we, we did to him. But, but I think sometimes people present this view of the faith yeah. that is long-faced and dark and serious. And and part of the story as you, it's that absurdity that just- It is. It is. Because life will just keep happening. I mean, and it is like, uh, it just keeps happening. I mean, for good or for bad, we just don't get to know whether whether we deserve what we get or whether we will lose more than we can live with. Or, you know, and a part of that I think is is our faith gives us a different ability not to search for certainty solely, but to just pray, God, let me see the world as it is. Like, let me see the brokenheartedness. Let me see the joy. Like, God, open my eyes so I actually get what's going on. And and to do that, we need truth. And for truth, I think we need humor. I think that it's it's interesting that, because I do think there's there's beauty um, and the absurd that have to be included in what is true and, and in the way that it is, because you have to, you have to account for the fact that just stuff happens. People get, Oh my gosh, it really does. Yeah. I mean, every time someone wants to sing circle of life, you have to remember that out there, you know, two animals are murdering each other. <laughs> I mean, if we don't, if we don't, <laughs> I think that we will do, especially just lovingly, she says about the main line who I will spend my life serving. But if we could be, um, a little more, uh, just a, a little, a little less serious about. I, I love our traditions. I love our casserole culture. I think we are just adorable, like truly adorable, and everyone should want to be us. Mm-hmm. And also, I think um, there's so much beautiful satire to work with. Anyone who's been part of a puppet ministry out there just knows. Oh, Anyone who's used a flanograph, I mean, just knows that we have a lot. The yeah. amount of pottery we all apparently need, though none of us are actually <laughs> performing communion. I can't get another chalice. I can't, guys. 
That's so I can't. funny. I, there's a box of my chalices that <laughs> I found in our sacristy because I've got so many. I'm like, I don't, I don't even want to keep up with them. Any, you, any, any, if we all had more. a progressive dinner just with the pottery, the mainline pottery, it would bring me a lot of joy. We were doing a huge communion thing and we needed 30 chalices. And somebody was like, can we come up with that many? I was like, can oh, we yeah, come we got up that. with that many? <laughs> Kate, I wanted to ask you, the end of the book is... is the the last chapter is unfinished cathedrals, and I, I, that's another theme that I see in your in your writing. You know, it's a thread that runs through that there's there is no resolution, and, yeah. and that that life has uh, kind of an unfinished an unfinished quality to it. Um, and, and and that's not exactly saying it's not it's in some ways it's I guess what I'm trying to to get at is that. It is as if you're trying to help us live in the moment, in the present, in a way that's yeah. not stoicism exactly. Yeah, no, just, not at all. Just, just flesh that out a bit more. Yeah. Well, I, if we become too future-oriented, if we're only looking forward to heaven, then you know maybe we don't work on forgiving our sibling or learning to apply our gifts in a way that stretches us. I mean, there's lots about living in the future that prevents us from digging into the present or just being the kind of person who watches Netflix too often. (laughs) I mean, we forget the beautiful mystery that is now. If we live too much in the past, which is so tempting, we will forget that God is always breaking in and interrupting us. And there are always people who need us. And so maybe now would be a lovely time to feel challenged and changed by that. But we can't only live in the present. It makes us selfish and um, individualistic, and it forgets that we are actually living God's story and not just our own. And so I've I loved I loved being reminded that that time is is a circle that God has saved us already and continues to save us, and yet hope is an anchor that's dropped in the future. It is slowly yanking us somewhere that we wouldn't even know where to go. And if we, if we, if we almost like hold all three in tension, we, I think we will have big enough lives, even if our lives, especially as we age, become very small. But to do that, we just can't get too caught up in the idea that we get to like bucket list or checklist things. We're not going to be able to like, McDonald's Monopoly style, collect all blanks and then go, <laughs> and then go, yeah. let's go. It's, we're never done. And like to imagine we'll be done, I think is to imagine that Christianity, our faith is, I, God, I just can't, I just can't with thee and then I will be satisfied. Because I'll tell you, I think the Holy Spirit truly gives us the experience of like fullness and wonder in God's presence, but that's God's work. Like God shows up in amazing moments, but then there's just us living our lives. And so to imagine we get that kind of nonstop fulfilled mountaintop feeling all the time, I think is is really not realistic. And I think it misreads what it feels like to be, you know, us, like not sure citizens of heaven, but like kind of just citizens of whatever this is. 
I love the uh, in your post about the the copperhead snake bite. You say <laughs> you say the the only story is this: pain is inevitable. Nurses are wonderful. Hospitals are loud. People are brave. We grow and we heal and we hurt, and then we do it all again. And uh, you know, I feel like you've you've been saying that uh, again and again. Um, but but it has to go on being said, you know, yeah. and and we have to go on uh, reminding ourselves of that of that reality, so that we can live both with beauty and with the crazy absurdity and mess that is mm-hmm. uh, the life that we have to share with one another and with God. Kate, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. We are so appreciative. Oh, it was so good to be with you both. It's it's been awesome. And for those listening, go ahead and pick up uh, her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And No Cure for Being Human comes out September the 20-something. 8th. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And if you want to hear uh, both my friend and Kate's friend, Matthew McConaughey, uh, <laughs> they don't know, nobody knows that story. Um, <laughs> but check out her podcast, wherever, wherever you listen to her podcasts. Just a lot of, you've had some amazing guests from folks like actors, but also some amazing writers. And it's a great, good gift and a great place for folks to kind of get to know you and your spirit as well. So thank you for your time with us today. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Wait. If you like what you heard today, uh, feel free to share the podcast with other people that are in your network. Leave us a review. That's always really helpful. Subscribe, and you can follow us on our social media channels. If you have any suggestions or guests you'd like us to interview or anything you'd like to share with us, you can send us an email at info at com.